Hi guys, welcome to the Premium Property Podcast. Today we have Arshad on the podcast and he is a buy-to-let investor from Scotland. Welcome Arshad, it's great to have you on. Thank you. Hey, great to be on guys. I hope you're managed to enjoy some of the, the weather that we've got going on just now. Yeah, definitely. You've got to make the most of it as much as we can, I guess. So yeah. Um, yeah, so tell us a bit about yourself and your background before property. Well, before I got into property, I, I'm the eldest of seven. So from a young age, I've had to kind of take on responsibility. And that's something I've always just embraced when growing up. So throughout school, I was like a model student, grade A's all the, you know, all the way. had a place at uni to do medicine. But I kind of lost my way a little bit. I, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just, uh, you know, sometimes pressure gets to you if you're always expectations, etc. So instead of going to university, uh, at the time I had a part-time job at the supermarket. Uh, that became a full-time job. Uh, I worked my way up from a shelf stacker to store manager in four years. And, but when I got there, I didn't like the glass ceiling. There wasn't much further to go. So that sort of inherent driving me kind of kicked in again. So off the back of that, in 2006, I went to Swastag University to do a degree in maths, stats and finance. Uh, timing couldn't have been any worse, seen as the, the last crash was 2009. So I had this lovely piece of paper saying, you know, I've got a degree in, in the financial world in 2010. So my timing couldn't have been any better. But whilst at uni, I was working for Lloyd's in the customer services, uh, customer services and sales teams. And whilst in there, even though it was part-time, I was full-time commitment, so I progressed to a manager in there. So you can see a theme developing. And in 2011, I got into a graduate job with Scottish Widows in Edinburgh as an actuary. And I've been there since and still am. So everything I'm doing in the hearing is in conjunction whilst working full-time as well. Awesome. So, yeah, would you say, um, looking back, you probably would have rather gone to uni straight away rather than getting the job or would you say that you took some good lessons from the job and then going to uni? It gave me an appreciation of an office job and that's for sure because you know mentally my work can be draining it's but it's also mentally challenging and stimulating and I enjoy that but you know being stacking shelves for eight hours is hard hard work and that's why you know, you've got to raise a salute to all the, the workers that are keeping the stores open and the NHS staff. You know, they're doing tough, tough work uh, under what's trying circumstances. So you really do appreciate that. So for me, I think it was a, a great grounding to know. And also, I felt the effort to remuneration ratio isn't quite there for physical work as it is for sort of mental work. So that's why I've always kind of gravitated towards what I do now, which is the actuarial work and property as well. Yeah, definitely. So with your job currently, has this helped in any way with property and has it helped you? Because you said that you um, you do risk assessments. So has this helped you with property to be able to better identify the risks involved with it? Yeah, like every... so. Property to me, it becomes an extension of you. So all your experiences become rolled up. There's some that are more pertinent and useful. So for instance, from the 
when I was on the phones, I, I build up how to sort of build rapport, talk to people, negotiate sales, whereas the actuarial work, you know, it's identifying risk and then mitigating it in pensions, investments and insurance. So it's the same kind of skill set. So when I look at a project, I'm, you know, the first thing I want to do is throw some numbers on a spreadsheet to, and mess about with them to see what comes out, uh, what works. And that's a quick way to identify projects that I don't even want to do where I've not wasted a lot of time before I then become more selective about what I want to do. So it's that kind of analysis, analysing comes across from the day job in actual, but also understanding risk. And one of the key risks that I've noticed when people are doing joint ventures and property and project is it's all about the security of the asset, which is important. But one of the things they forget is the key person, uh, key person risk. So, for instance, what happens if something happens to the, the investor? You know, God forbid. Or what happens if something happens to the person that's got your money and is using it to invest in the project? You, so the, these are kind of some of the risks that because of the job that I do that come into my head and that I mitigate before, before I go into projects that I, you know, I know others just don't. Yeah, exactly. So I guess it makes like make sure that your investments are nice and safe and you are extra conservative. So you know that it will be a good deal if anything does go wrong. Yeah, I suppose it's my risk threshold. I take calculated risks. For instance, when I went back to university to study, I left a full-time job to go back and, you know, totally change my landscape. So it was a calculation based on the return in the long term with the effort that I put in. So that's kind of similar to what I do. So it just with risk, I'm not risk averse. I take calculated risks, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, you said that you got a uh, basic education in 2015. Would you say that it's important to get educated? And then what are your opinions on paid courses? So for me, I've got a bias towards education because it's kind of helped me to get where I am. And also my parents kind of drummed it into me. So I come from that's where my headspace is. I even went back to study as a mature student when I was trying to, um, you know, figure out what to do. So I naturally lean towards being educated and then acting upon. So for me, there's a definite place for education and property. However, saying that and looking at how little I really actually needed to understand and learn to get going, it's better to get a basic understanding to get a hold of the basics and then go for it and learn on the job because you will learn a lot more from your first project. So if you try and take something small and deliver it, you'll learn a lot more from that than you will from two years of education in property because most of the time you won't need that level. Uh, as for paid courses, for their, their key thing for me is about the emotional attachment that you've placed on that money. So once you've spent that money, you really, it puts a pressure on you to do something about it because there's a good chance your friends and family have all warned you not to pay that money. And sometimes that money can be big numbers, can be used for a deposit or a project. So what it does is it gives you that 
lets you overcome that inertia of not doing something. Because you pay so much money, it creates that pro pressure for you to go ahead and do something. There's no other way to create that. But I would say get a basic education, use your money to get started and learn along the way. And if there's gaps, pay for it for, by paid specialists. Yeah, definitely. I feel like, especially with paid courses, there's only so much you can learn before you then have to take action because obviously the best way to learn is to take action because then you're learning from your mistakes. Yeah, I mean, one of the key things, and this is like I, I hear in what you guys do and also the people that are successful in property, everything that you do is about your mindset. And I know it sounds like you're thinking, what's mindset got to do with property? Well, everything, your whole perception of the world is based on, you know, the synapses firing in your head. So if you can figure out how you work and how you see the world and how you can overcome the things that kind of trip you up, that will stand you in a greater stead than any education because then you have the right uh, systems and processes in place to keep going even when it gets tough. Yeah, definitely. I feel like mindset is just so important when you're wanting to get into property. So um, moving on to your first project then, obviously your first property was fairly low risk and like a light refurb. How did you scale this up to bigger refurbs and what were some of the challenges you faced? I think uh, f for me, it's that kind of, once you understand the process, you want to add a little extra complexity at a time. So that's one reason why I picked something small and light. It's the same with, you know, when you're at school, you don't start off with a complex algebra. You know, you learn numbers, you learn to count, you learn numbers, and, you know, a slow, gradual progression. And the same should be with your property journey because, you know, if you take out a mortgage in 25 years, so these are long-term product, products, especially if you're doing a buy-to-let. So don't be in a mad rush to do something overly complicated. You've got time on your side for you and anybody else starting out. Um, so for me, what I did with regards to increasing the complexity is I actually turned down deals and projects because I like to keep an element of humbleness about what I'm doing. I know there's part of me that goes, yes, I'm starting out, but there's another part of me that goes, yes, I move fast, I learn fast, I learn quick, I don't make the same mistake again. So it's just finding that balance of having the confidence to take action, but to challenge myself on each step to take me outside the comfort zone, but not over the cliff edge. So I looked for projects that were a little bit more complicated and turned down ones that might have been easier or too complicated and so on and so forth. So it's that case of don't be in a rush, be consistent. Um, the biggest challenge for me is, I think, has always been builders and trades. And I think we kind of touched upon that before we started this recording. It's just there's so many moving parts and it's hard to estimate times and costs. So a way around that that I found was by getting a few quotes from different builders. So what that meant is you could then compare like with like and then figure out what is right and what doesn't feel right. Yeah, exactly. So would you, um, if you were to start again, would you sacrifice potentially a, a higher ROI on a, a more risky project and go a bit safer, but then have a lower ROI just to learn 
That, that's exactly what I did on my third project, although the ROI in the end did turn out to be great. But I, I took on a project where I thought I would break even on it, to be honest. And I thought even if, I, if it cost me a couple of thousand pounds, the learning I'd have would be so much more than what the money left in the deal or even if I made profit, then it would be a result kind of thing for me. So yes, agreed. Yeah, awesome. So um, you said that uh, your builder went bust during your first refurb. How did you overcome this setback and did it affect your cash flow? And if so, how did you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, it's when, when you're starting out, that's when you want all your sort of big lessons to be learned because then, you know, the implications aren't as huge. You know, if you've picked up a property for 30, 40K, the difference between that and a property when you're on 200, 200K or 500K and the costs and implications are a lot worse. So, you know, schoolboy error, I paid 75% up front before they even, you know, start, laid a brick or did any kind of rip out. Uh, I've learned over time uh, that's not the thing to do. But fortunately, what happened for me is that when they were close to going bust, because I do regular reviews and I take an active interest in my properties, I'll visit it at least once a week on any kind of project. And I get, as it gets closer to finishing, I'll go in more. I sense something wasn't right. And because they were beyond, they'd done more than 70, they'd done about 80% of the work. So I used the remaining 25% as a carrot to incentivize them to finish it off. So I would then give them that money because obviously they were needing cash. So that was a really close shave. So what I do about it now is I have stage payments, I schedule works. And also at the beginning, there's that kind of disparity. So when you're not confident and you have people that come in that know their thing, you kind of think, oh, well, they just know that's how it is and that's how it should be. So don't be afraid to challenge. Don't be afraid to seek advice and help from other people. And don't, don't be afraid to compare and contrast, especially when you bring in trains and builders. Yeah, exactly. And if you were to go back and like you were looking for a builder, what would some of the questions you'd be asking to compare all of the different builders? I mean, for me, with regards to the, the builder, there's due diligence. So first of all, you know, you want to get testimonials. So you want to speak to people. It's not just something off a right move. You, not right move, sorry. Something off of um, the internet or Facebook. You want to speak to people that have actually done work for other people when they're recommending them. Also, review previous work from people that you know and trust do they have trade body associations so if they've got you know federation of master builders logo and they're registered with them does that mean that means that they they probably ascribe to a higher level of standard so when you're starting out you want to associate with people like that rather than the one-man bands because uh, you know you might never see them again also a company's house check so that way so that's essentially if you go on to the you know HMRC website, you can see how long they've been trading for, you know their accounts, etc. So if they've been going for a while, then you know that they will probably be there till the end of your project at least. The other thing is when it comes to 
quotes. Don't compare apples and pears. Don't tell one person you want them to include a kitchen and the other person not to, because then you can't really compare the, the quotes. Another good tell with the builders is how do they handle your quote? So is there a level of professionalism? Is it on a bit of paper? Have they sent you a WhatsApp message? Or have they actually taken the time to sort of detail the quote and then send it out to you when they said they would? Because if they're late with the quote, then what are they going to be like when they're actually in your building? But you have to be a little bit careful with that because sometimes tradespeople aren't very good with admin. So that's just a caveat you've got to hold. But that gives you a really good feel of asking for testimonials trade body associations, and also comparing quotes with two or three builders. And one other trick that I used was when the first builder comes in, you sponge the knowledge from that person. So when the second builder comes in, you go, what about this or what about that? And they go, oh, he knows something. And then when it comes to the third builder, you're telling them what you want because you've heard what the first and second builder have said. Yeah, exactly. So you just, you don't let them really try and take advantage of you because you showed them that you actually know what you're doing really yeah just leverage knowledge for you know from the other guys yeah yeah definitely and with the um company's house check if you went on there and the um you had like a you thought you had a good relationship with the builder but they'd only been running for a few months say would you completely write them off or would you still like keep an open mind but just do a bit more Due diligence. Yeah, listen, you know, everyone's got to start from somewhere. We, we all do. What you do there is you, you do stage payments. So in that instance, now it's easy for me to say now, but what, what you do is they do the work, then you pay them. You do the work and you pay them. That way, if they go on or they don't finish up, yes, it's a pain to get someone else, but at least you've got the money there to pay someone else to do the majority of it. Yeah, exactly. So would you um, just go in and check the work they've done against your schedule of works and then pay them based on that. Exactly. So, you know, before we even start, we sit down and go, week, end of week one, we're going to do this. End of week two, we're going to do this, blah, blah, blah. Now, I understand there's delays. What you then do is at the end of the week, you have a conversation. Uh, for me, is go, right, we said we would do this. And then I go, what do you think is fair? And if you're with the right people, they will tell you, they know whether they're ahead or behind. And it just, you know, with the, and it just worked well like that with me, with the builders. Or there's other ones where if it's not a bigger refurb, then it's just 25% at certain points or certain works being, being done. Yeah, exactly. So I guess it all just depends on the relationship you have and the agreement you get from the start really yeah it's that open communication of, at the beginning of what you want and how you want to work because remember it's your project it's not the builder's project it's you that's responsible for returning the profit on this not them they get paid where you know whether it takes whatever the profitability or whatever else marketing conditions are yeah exactly so you said that um the refurb costs were a bit too high on your first project so how did you um sort of learn from this and keep the costs down for the next sort of projects what things did you change essentially yeah well i went for late because i got a bit more comfortable i, I opened up some trade accounts with howdens uh, you know for the kitchens 
Also, uh, LMPG, that's Landlords National Purchasing Group, they've got some great uh, discounts. And the thing is, they've got a great team as well that can help you if you to sort of leverage knowledge. And it's the same with the trade accounts as well. So what I did was I bought the big ticket items. And what that does is it builds up your credit with the suppliers. And also it kind of forced me to learn the cost and the timeline of materials. Because if I'm responsible for ordering them, if the builder's about to do the bathroom and the bathroom's not there, then it's on me. So, you know, that's how I kind of push down the costs is by buying the big ticket items. Yeah, and did you have to um, learn, find out how long it would take to get there before um, you ordered it? And how did you do this? Did you just ask the experts? Schedule of works, my friend. It goes back to your schedule of works because if you have that schedule of works at the beginning, you know what's going on when. So you can, like, you know, every weekend beforehand, generally things take two weeks. The, the most anything will take is probably two weeks to deliver unless it's something really bespoke. So two weeks before, you make sure you have it all lined up for what you need to have ordered in two weeks that you need in two weeks' time, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then you can just, or you can just have it all ordered and then delivered at set points. It's just how you want to do it, how you want to run it, how you want to manage it. Yeah, awesome. That's a great tip. So um, moving on to your second project then, you said that it was bought with investor funds. So what would you say are some of the fundamentals to get right when looking for investors? Yeah, this is a... So a great question because, you know, what one of the when people are getting into property and property, the, there's that scarcity mindset of there's not enough deals or I don't have enough money or there is, isn't enough money out there. So what you can what you need to do is build your credibility. So are you an investable person? Do you have a good track record? Now it doesn't need to be in property. It just means in life. Do you do what you say you're going to do? You know, if you're supposed to have a meeting with someone, do you turn up in time? Are you there in advance? Have you prepared? So is that building up your credibility? And it's you can do it through your social media. So if you are, like, for instance, yourself, you guys are building up your credibility by, you know, this podcast. People will listen to this see that you've absorbed the knowledge and you will then start going into the expert, expert space. So that buys you that credibility and then leverage that. So it's the same with, if you're inexperienced, if you buddy up with someone that is experienced, that will fast track your credibility. But it might cost you a little in return. But at the beginning, pay it. You know, uh, the, the next thing that's important for investors is the return. Now, I see it slightly different because of my background as an actuary. So my before you look at return on investment, so that's if you gave me £10,000 and I said at the end of the year you're going to get 10800 back. So that's return on investment. The more important thing is return of investment. Am I going to get my 10000 back? You know, so instead of focusing on the £800, you go, well, what goes wrong? What? How will they return that money? So that's something that you need to, where the credibility comes in, but also that 
um, what underpins that is the exit. How, what are you going to do? Is it just one exit? So are all your eggs in one basket? I never go into a project that's, you know, it's got to have at least two exits for me. So if it's the main strategy is for a buy to let, then it still needs to be able to wash its face if I have to sell it. Same with if it's a flip, it still needs to be able to buy to let. Also, for the investor, what security can you give them? Can they have? And sometimes if it's not enough money that they're investing to give them security, but your credibility, the return you're offering, and the exit is the security, is enough security for them. And the, the other thing important is time horizons. There's no point getting, you know, 8 or 10% if it's over 20 years. So how long are you going to take to deliver the project? How well do you deal with delays? How good is your communication? So these are the fundamentals that you have to really build before you even get into property and look for money is your credibility, what you're going to give them in return, what exits you've got lined up, what security you can give them and over how long. Those are the main sort of key metrics when you're looking for investors you need to focus on. Yeah, especially with the uh, credibility, I think, especially in property as well, your reputation is absolutely everything. And if you mess up once, then it can damage everything for you. Yes. So um, in terms of credibility and reputation, and what, what do you think are some of the best ways to build that up so you would attract investors? So do what you're going to say. So do what you said you're going to do. That, believe it or not, that is such a simple thing, but so many people are so busy. So if you said to someone you're going to contact them off the back of a call, contact them off the back of a call. If you said you're going to send them an investor pack, send them an investor pack. It's, some of these things are just little tests that people do to see whether you deliver on your little promises. So, for instance, even if you look at the exchange that we had with regards to coming on to this podcast, I've tried to make it as painless as possible for you, and you tried to do the same for me. So that tells me that's two people or two groups of people that are looking to work together, and we will be in a position to work together going forward. Whereas if you'd sent me a set of questions and I hadn't answered, you're like, well, we could spend our time on someone else. So that investor can invest with someone else. So if you're going to spend the time and effort to build that investor database or to ask someone for money, make sure you do what you say you're going to do. Yeah, definitely. That's um, so important. And then um, in terms of finance, then, you said it went right down to the wire. So explain to us how you got the funds in the end and what you learned from this. Yeah, I kind of jokingly referred myself to myself as Green Lips. Uh, basically, I kissed a lot of frogs, bought a lot of coffee, and uh, because I'd already done one, I leveraged that fact. So that's the kind of, you know, here's my track record. I've already done one. Here's the return that someone's got. But one of my investors actually popped up when I was having a casual chat, and I mentioned, so I didn't mention who the other investor was, was but I mentioned a, on a different project what the return they got and they say well I'd like that and that was just a friend over lunch and I never even put them in that sphere so you'd be surprised at what people have and how much money is actually out there now just as a, a little experiment and a, a bit of fun what I was going to say 
if anybody listening wants to get a hands-free fixed return or wants to get under the hood and see what happens in property project, you know, get in touch with me through my socials under Ali. And what I'll do is I'll feed back to you guys based on what the response is off the back of this podcast to then hopefully show people what can be achieved if you put it out there. Yeah, it's like you'd never know who you meet and like you're like one step away from that right person, if that makes sense. Exactly, yeah. Your, your, net, your network is your net worth. You'd, I always believe I don't need to have all the answers. I just need to find the people that have the answer or know the answer or pay the person to get me the answer. Yeah, exactly. And I think especially when you're like a beginner in property, it's so important to build the right connections because then you can, like you said, leverage their knowledge if you need a, a question answering or you're stuck on anything. Exactly. So, yeah. But the important thing there is when you get a little bit further on, the implicit promise is if I'm helping you, then you're helping people that are starting out again. You know, that you always pay it forward because someone's helped you. So you that's how it works in my eyes kind of thing anyway, is that there are people that have helped me so they incumbent on me to help others. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's so true. And I think in property, it's sort of a cycle because people are so helpful. And then the people that do get helped want to pass that same knowledge on. So it's just like a cycle, really, and everyone's helping. Yeah, it's an amazing community. And, and you know, there's all, all these different groups, but you, you do sense the community underneath. But one of the things I will say is if you are asking for help or getting help from people, is take action on it. You know, it's back to that credibility. Say what you're going to do. If someone's went out of the way to help you, if you then go back a week later and having not done or made any progress, then, you know, that help will dissipate because it's just the nature of how it works is you can get help and you can get help, but after a while, you've got to do something. Yeah, exactly. It all comes back to take an action really doesn't it yeah so when you were trying to secure these um investor funds obviously you we've mentioned that it went down to the wire how did you make sure that you weren't coming across as desperate when in the back of your mind you knew that you had to get these secured in order to go through with the project yeah it's like thinking back now i actually can remember the the little bit of anxiety that I had, but I believe in what I'm doing. And the reason why I believe in that is I do my research, I do my analysis, and then I execute, I take action. I also have a higher threshold than most. So I pass up on so many projects as they just don't fit my criteria. I don't hit my numbers. So when I do a deal, trust me, you want in. You know, I know that sounds a bit like a a sales pitch, but the, the important thing to kind of remember and this, this is like anything in life. I work hard to get rid of FOMO, which is the fear of missing out. There will always be another deal. So, yes, you need pressure to kind of perform and deliver, but also have that underlying current of don't let it build up that it gets to the point that is detrimental to your mental health. There will always be another deal. You just need to work harder if you let this one go away. Yeah, exactly. So it, would you say, like, don't get too attached to the deal, really? Yeah, it, it's it's hard not to. The, 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 I, I refuse anyone that 
that cares and enjoys this not to get some kind of emotional attachment. But you only do that once you do your fundamentals, once you do your numbers, once it ticks all the boxes, once it, you know, once it, the sort of, it takes your identity of what it should be, then you can get a little bit emotionally. So I get emotionally attached once the tenant's in. Yeah. So once it's bought, refurbed, it's just a box to me that I'm going to turn into a home for a family. And that's where my emotional attachment, you know, that social good, that's where my emotional attachment comes into it. So I leave it, my emotional attachment to the end so it doesn't influence my numerical analysis. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so for someone who's like new in property and it's maybe their first potential deal, how would you advise them to sort of stay unemotionally attached from the deal in the beginning? So I would say when you're starting in property, you've got to have your strategy. Then you find your area and then you find your project. So if you do that right, so is your strategy you want chunks of cash? If it's chunks of cash, then you probably got to do flips. Is your strategy, you know, buy to let, slow, steady, drip income? That, that, that'll be your buy to let. So say, for instance, so that's not an emotion. That's just a based on what you want. So you pick what your strategy is. Then based on that strategy, you do the analysis of a right move or Zoopla and other fundamentals and estate agents and walking areas to see what area you want to do it in. Now, you can see all of a sudden there isn't much emotion attached at that point. Once you've got the right the strategy, the right um, area, then you get the property. By the time you've picked that property up, you've done all your due diligence, which has been non-emotional. You've done all your analysis, which has not been emotional. So that's how you avoid leaving the emotion out of it as long as you can. And then when you get to the build part, because really now when you buy a property, it's exciting on your first one. But when you get to like number five, six, seven, eight, you go, oh, great, a refurb. <laughs> I've got a refurb to deal with. So the best way to say unemotional is do your analysis before you get to the project and then you know you can love it as much as you want yeah exactly so i guess in terms of the area analysis because you're just specifically looking at the numbers in the area then it's not really emotional is it yeah the only numbers that you fall in love with is what falls into your bank account at the end (laughs) (laughs) otherwise otherwise, numbers are numbers are very unemotional they just tell you you know the fact yeah exactly yeah so um moving on to your third project would you be able to just explain to us a bit about that project and how it went yeah it was was, um a fantastic project at the time i didn't i didn't realize only now looking back that i can see it clearly something dropped into my uh, mailbox you know, I must have put out there that I'm looking to purchase property uh, on a Friday night. I contacted the, and it was Friday night, and I was just winding down, and I was just going to leave it. But then in life, you got to take the opportunities when they present themselves. I'm always a great believer in strike when the iron's hot. So I picked up the phone, contacted the person, and they weren't sure when they could meet me. 
So I said, how about tomorrow morning? And like, oh, I can't, I'm away at eight o'clock in the morning. And goes, well, can you meet earlier than that? He goes, well, if you can get down here for six o'clock. And I went, okay. So I remember getting up early, six o'clock the next day. And my wife was like, where are you going? I went, don't ask. And then off, off, off I went, you know, at the weekend when it's family time. Uh, essentially what it was, was there's a property that hadn't been lived in for a year. Water had been left on for a month. So the whole place was just riddled with damp. It was a mid terrace over two floors. Everything was dripping. Everything was creaking. And I think they just wanted to get rid of it. And they knew there'd be a lot of money to spend to put it back up. So the person that did live in there was no longer, you know, living there. So they just, it was just a pain for them to, uh, to, to have to show people to get rid of it. So instead of me going, how much, you know, here's an offer. I just went, what are you looking for it to gauge what they would say? And, you know, the answer they came back was a lot lower than I was expecting. So I offered a wee bit more and said, let's shake on it. And that was it. So essentially it was a three bed mid terrace in the middle of central Scotland. And based, it was in a horrible state. Everything had to be ripped out back to brick four walls and a roof and start again yeah awesome so i guess the fact that you um got up and got there for 6 a.m on the weekend just shows the sort of reality of property and how hard it can be at, at times yeah it's when you're starting out you've got to follow every lead you know after a while you learn what you can disregard but at the beginning you can't afford to because you don't know what you don't know does yeah. that make sense yeah it's yeah. only with time so i will never be beaten for effort and hard work but i also try and be smart about it but at the beginning i know i've got to work hard but over time i use my smarts and i learn so that way a i'm not repeating mistakes but b i'm working more efficiently and that's what you get with experience is efficiency or you should get yeah exactly because i guess on the first few leads you get you don't really know what you're looking for and then you just learn that along the way i guess well that's where your strategy area comes in because that gives you a broad sense and then you can hone down sit and do the analysis so yes yeah brilliant so um you said that you went for a full back to brick refurb um what were the things that you were sort of apprehensive about when taking this project on and how did you deal with those yeah i mean it goes back to what we said right at the beginning of the program is mindset we've all got an inner voice you know that one that goes this isn't a good idea i don't know if you can do it i'm not sure it's a bit more than what we've done and naturally it springs doubt but one way to overcome it that I've found is I'm a natural problem solver I I don't see problems I know it sounds weird I just see puzzles I haven't figured out yet so it's fun maybe I'm just tricking myself I don't know maybe I'm on the spectrum I'm not sure but it's one of those ones for me and so far I've got a 100% record of figuring it out so that kind of gives me that sort of confidence in well whatever comes my way i'll either figure it out or i'll humbly go ask someone else to help me figure it out 
or I'll pay someone to help me to fix it. So there's never really a problem for long. It's just how long is it going to take me to figure it out? The other thing is with having that right mindset and focusing on there, you've also got to seize the opportunity. You know that act fast but wisely. So I got there at six o'clock in the morning. But before I got there at six o'clock in the morning to shake hands, I'd already done my analysis. I'd already knew what kind of offer I wanted to put in. And then I could adjust based on broad figures of what I see. So act fast, wisely. There's also another phenomena that the listeners might be familiar with. It's called the Pareto Principle. It was 80-20. So to put it into context, if you look at your wardrobe in, that you wear day-to-day clothes-wise, you'll probably find that 80% of the time you wear 20% of your clothes. You know, it take, when you're doing an exam or when you're trying to get marks in an exam, 20% effort will get you roughly 80% of the marks, but it's the last 20% that takes the rest of the 80% of time. So it's balancing off how much effort you put in for results. If you always strive for 100%, you're going to get nowhere fast because whilst you focus and do something 100%, in that same time, I will have done two projects, which will give me 160%, you know, to 80%. So although I'm an analyst at heart, when I get to 80% confidence, that's it. I hit the button, let's go, let's get it done. I can figure the rest of 20% out. And the other thing that kind of calms down the inner voice and the doubt and the problem solving is do the due diligence and do your due diligence so that way you reduce the number of problems that you're going to have to deal with. So if you get your mindset right, if you seize the opportunity and you do your due diligence, you've got a great platform to push on for any project. And in fact, anything you want to do in life is, you know, that will give you that platform to push off on. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Yes, um, that was a great analogy about the the, uh, 80-20 rule. So that's good. Um, So a lot of people... When it comes to the property you bought, obviously it had water running for a month and it was damp everywhere. So a lot of people would actually maybe like turn that down. But when it comes to costs in that sense, what were some of the things that you missed out and came up as unexpected costs that other people might miss out, if that makes sense? Yes. No, no. I, I know exactly what you mean. There's always the unknown unknowns. So what you want to do, what I did, literally got a spreadsheet from Google you know, the internet, line by line, using the schedule works and, and the material that we needed from the architect, just what each thing is, all the trades, I put it all down. But one thing I forget, and I think I'm guilty of that in other projects, is the gardens and outsides. They always cost more than you think. And the reason why a lot of people forget about them is they don't really add much value to the property. All they can do generally is bring the value of your property down and bring the curb appeal down. So when I say if you upgrade the kitchen, you know there'd be money added. If you spent a fortune in the garden, you're not going to get much return. So what you really want to do is tidy up the garden for as little cost as you can, but make sure the front of the house is presentable and it's attractive. So it's finding that balance. So that's one thing that I think people can miss out. Also, everything takes longer than you budget and time for. 
it just does because there's always because what you have in front of you is an idealized plan and that's what you've got to work to because that's what they've got you know timeliness deadlines smart targets to specific measurable um you know achievable realistic and timely so you've got to have a schedule works but understand that's an ideal scenario so if you're doing financing it's going to cost you more it's going to cost you more than you think it will so that's some of the hidden costs involved that people don't quite appreciate the garden although that's not like a massive impact but the financing can be because you've got security of the property at stake yeah definitely so um, in terms of then trying to fix that would you would you advise people to have like a contingency when it comes to refurbing a property then just to account for those unexpected costs exactly because you don't know what you don't know mm. you know but you can compensate and you can make allowances for what you don't know and what crops up so typically what i say is for your refurb have 10 percent contingency set aside in your numbers for all the things that are you know that you haven't factored or figured out or something happens or there's delays or you know damages or etc so what you're saying contingency is fantastic the other thing i want you to kind of touch on just going back to the the builders was on the bigger projects you can do retention what that means is there's a small percentage say five percent that you keep aside even after the project is done for any future snagging that comes up for two or three months and then you pay that to complete the balance off and that's just standard practice i didn't know that when i started out but it would have helped me with builders and dealing with them um you know now so that's why i kind of mentioned that the tension part no yeah that's definitely a good point not one i've heard so i'm definitely gonna look into that because it seems good so um when when it comes to managing it yourself then what would you what would you say are the key things that you would need to get right so i know i keep on banging the drum i am an analyst but schedule works and just to kind of explain to people i know i've been using the phrase assuming everyone knows what it means but Essentially, that's the timeline of what's going to be done and by when on that project. So that's what a scheduler works is. What you do then is you have a payment structure to mark, match the work that's been done that's slightly delayed. So at the end of the week, once the work's done, or the end of two weeks, or the end of a month, depending on the size of the project, you know you assess the work's been done and the payment matches more or less the work that's been done. Because what that means then is if the builder knows there's going to be a discussion about the work that's been done, they will work later that Friday or even on Saturday to get it caught up so they can get the money that they're due. So that's why, and also because I work, and this is a tip for the people that work, if you're going to create a payment structure with your builder, most builders like paid on the Friday. I did mine on the Sunday. So what that meant was, I wasn't breaking my neck on a Friday night to go visit the property to check up on the work. I had Saturday, and if something happened Saturday, I had Sunday morning to go and review the work, and then I could sign off the money Sunday night. So that's just a wee top tip for anybody that's managing the project and working themselves. Uh, you know, obviously try and keep the weekends to yourself if you can, but that's one way where it can make your life easier by agreeing the payment points to be on a Sunday evening rather than a Friday. 
Also, the other thing is uh, touching on, I, when I've got a project, I do regular reviews. Now, at the beginning, when there's a rip out, you know, it's a maybe once a week, if that's just to make sure everything's going on track. But as you get, as there's more moving parts, as there's more, uh, you know, kitchen going in, bathroom going in, especially when you get around to the decoration part, you want to really go in twice a week, be really on top of it, make sure there's open communication so everybody knows what's going on. So one of the things that I did was I took the plans for where sockets, etc., printed it out and I circled each room and I put a picture up in each room. So that way, whoever was working that room knew exactly what had to be done, where everything was going, because they've got a picture there to refer to. And if there's any confusion or doubt, I can go, well, no, look, this picture says this. Why do you not do this? And they'll just know themselves. And the other thing was contingency and retention. These are the key things you have to get right. So you always need to have a pot. You don't want to go back to your investor and go, listen, I need another X amount because I hadn't thought of this or I hadn't thought of that. It, that shoots your credibility to the ground. That's why you have your contingency pot to deal with the issues. Now, there's ways around it as well because your contingency pot could be on a credit card, you know, something that you've got yourself. It doesn't necessarily have to be money set aside. That's just if things are tight. And the retention is just more a little bit about what happens is even after the build is finished, there's always something that crops up. So what that retention means is they'll come back and fix it. And if they don't, at least you've got the money there to then go and pay someone else to do it. I know what I've been saying about is based on an investor working towards a builder. I would also like to take a moment to say for builders, you should also do your due diligence on the investors. How long have they been running? Have they got credibility? Will they follow through with the payment? Are they professional as well when you're trying to get in touch? So it's a two-way street with all the trades and all the professionals that you're dealing with. So I don't want to just seem like a builder bashing just because I had a bad experience at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's exactly right. I guess it's just like a mutual relationship and you both have to be putting your all into it, I guess. Yeah, so just a summary of what you need to keep right, schedule works, payment structure, regular reviews, contingency and retention. Yeah, definitely. So you touched on the fact that you had like a picture of what needed to be done and where everything went in each room. How would you advise people to like go about planning where they're going to put certain things such as sockets or um, lamps or just even where the bed's going to go? Well, when you come to sockets and lamps and whatnot, unless you plan to go down doing a degree, uh, I would pay a specialist, your architect. They'll they'll produce you those docu- those drawings, so you've got them. Print them off, use them. Builders are very visual people. You can say something to them. Is their nature isn't to work in words. Their nature is to work with things and what they see and what they do. So if you have a picture front and centre to them, that's what they work to generally <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um so with regards to the beds and stuff that is more a decor thing so you can get people that do staging or even you can use magazines so a great one really for staging if you if you don't want to i would not i would recommend staging but staging really sets an, a, a property apart from one that's not staged but it can be expensive so if you want to do yourself what you do is you go to Airbnb or you go to booking.com 
and you see how the professionals have set up their property and you use their colour schemes and you use uh, how their layout is and how they've framed it and how they've tried to sell a lifestyle to then put back into your property. So the information is out there, it's just going out to find it. Yeah, exactly, definitely. So just take inspiration really from the people who are sort of doing it professionally, I guess. Exactly. Awesome. So if someone was new to property and wanted to take on a project and manage it themselves, how would you sort of suggest to them to learn about project management? What are some of the sort of ways you'd learn about it? Yeah, this is this is this actually comes back to one of the, the key themes throughout the, our, our talk today is it's about mindset and understanding what you're good at and what you're not. Now, you you have to take it before you even get into property, you have to stop and think, what do I enjoy doing? What do I not enjoy doing? And then you also need to look at what am I good at? What am I not good at? Now, there's a couple of schools of thoughts. There's one that's saying that you should focus on the things that you're not good at because then you'll get balanced. I personally feel double down on your strengths and get in people to backfill the rest of what you the skill sets that you're missing. So I'm always happy to pay a specialist to come in to fill a niche or a hole or a knowledge gap. So for instance, for me, that's where the builder comes in. Generally, the builder will, they will charge you roughly 20%, but they will do the project management for you from the building part. Obviously, you need to project manage it from purchase, mortgage, solicitor, estate agents, and all that part, like the bigger overall project. But the, it's almost like you're a, a project manager of the project managers, if you see yourself like that. So I project manage my solicitor to get the deal done. I project manage my mortgage broker to get me a mortgage. I then project manage my builder to project manage the property. I then project manage the estate agent or the letting agent to either get me a tenant or to sell the property. So in a way, you don't actually need to know the specific things. You just need to be able to work with people and get the right people in and around you. Hence why they call it a power team. Some people call it a power team. Uh, It's important to get that right. And the key components of your power team I've mentioned there. So you've got your broker, you've got, you know, your surveyors and damp report, etc., damp specialist, you've got your solicitor, you've got your builders, tradesmen, you've got your estate agent, letting agent, and also very important, before you buy any property, speak to your accountant and speak to the mortgage broker because you need to know how you're getting in and out with a mortgage broker. And you need to make sure that you maximize your profit by speaking to your accountant. Yeah, awesome. So just sort of pay the pay people to do the things that you're not so good at so that you can focus on your strengths and just grow that constantly, I guess. Yeah. So what really what I focus on and has worked for me so far is because I'm very limited with the time I can spend in property because I've got a full time job. So it doesn't make sense for me to paint a wall. It doesn't make sense for me to 
scan through hundreds of mortgages to find the best one for me. It doesn't make sense for me to figure out my tax affairs. You know, it doesn't, I don't have time to go get a structural degree. So what I focus on is raising funds and finding the deals. And then it's just a matter of project managing that cycle through all the various specialists along the way. Yeah, exactly. So you've just got to be sort of smart with your time, I guess, because the time that you spend on managing your accounts, you could actually be spending looking for the next deal and getting that net next investment. Yeah. Yeah, the property investor pays the accountant. The accountant doesn't pay the property investor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And 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 also just kind of touching on that, you should actually work out your charging hour, which is, and this is for any task in life, and this is what one of the ways I learned how to quickly decide and make decisions on how I want to do things is, I work roughly. What is my charging or what would I get paid if I was doing what I meant to be doing? And then I look at the thing that needs done and I go, how much will that cost me? And how much of my time would it take to do? Can I get it cheaper by getting someone else? And that will free my time up to do the big ticket items of raising money and finding the deal. So those are the two places where you should focus your energy on if you consider yourself a property investor. Yeah, definitely. That's a great tip. And mindset, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's a great tip about um, sort of working out what you charge yourself because that way you can actually value your time a lot more. So fundamental. So um, you said on the topic of like specialists and stuff, you said that it's important to get paid specialists in such as structural surveyors or dam specialists would you do this for every project and would you get them in before or after once again it's a back to basics first of all is this project viable is it profitable so once it's ticked off those then you you start going into it deeper and for me you look at in scotland we've got home reports so essentially on there, it'll, it'll stay the majority of the things. It, it's got a one, two, three scale. So one is it's perfect. Two is it's okay just now, but it might need attention in a couple of years' time. Three is it needs immediate attention. So if there's a three on the home report, that's a big clue and sign that you should get it looked into. I, I don't think you you have to pay for a RICS report, I think, down in England. Uh, and um, in there, they'll probably detail if it needs further investigation by a specialist. So that's your big first clue. And for me, a report by a structural surveyor is a couple of hundred pounds, if not 500 pounds. That's a tiny amount to pay for a property that's going to cost you thousands. And also the remediation work involved is going to cost you a lot more. And the other, the, the beauty of getting these reports done is it gives you a bargaining chip when you go back to the vendor or the seller is not you being fly or is not you being uh, opportunist. It's simply stated in fact by independent specialists saying, this is the work that needs done. So are you going to meet me halfway, Mr. Vendor? Or, you know, depending on how your conversation and where you are, if you already agreed, well, I would say get your reports done because a lot of times it's offer subject to satisfactory inspection or reports. 
So even though your offer might be accepted, you then get the specialist. So what I would do in that scenario is, if it's ticked all the boxes of the deal, I would put an offer in subject to those specialist reports. And then off the back of that, see if there's a further conversation required or not. And that way, you're not tied into a property that's going to cost you £100,000 plus tens of thousands of pounds to fix when you could have had the answer for £500. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, I think it's just um, paying that small fee for something that in the long run can just benefit you and it's just there, isn't it? Yeah, and, and the thing is you could even ask the vendor to pay for it because then they get to keep the report. Yeah, that's a different way of looking at it, but it's definitely, uh, yeah, that's, that's decent. You know, because so, then it could buy them confidence. However, for me, I prefer to be in a bit more control about the information. So if I've paid the specialist, I want the report so then I can control, I, I can get, I can have a discussion with the specialist about how I can deal with what he's done. Yeah, definitely. So um, what would you say are some of the keys to getting a good valuation? Right. So this comes down to a couple of things. First of all, before we even get to the valuation part, I'll take you a step back and go, what are you doing to the property to get that valuation? Now, for me, in my eyes, I always like to add value. Adding value is not about making improvements you like. It's about satisfying demand. So just to give you some numbers, off the, not off the top of my head, but some rough and ready numbers for people, if they're looking at property projects themselves, if you got off-street parking, that kind of adds 10% to the value. If you upgrade the kitchen, that adds roughly 10%. So that gives you a range of what to spend in the kitchen. Don't spend too much, but don't spend too little that you don't get that impact. Because one of the key selling features is a kitchen. Bathroom adds around about 5%. Central heating adds 5%. Double glazing adds 5%. An additional room typically can add 10%, but you have to be careful that you don't turn, say, a three-bed into a four-bed and there's no market for a four-bed, so you have to be careful with that. So, you know, this leads on to your valuation. By doing the right work in the right way and spending the right money, you will then put yourself in a position for when the home report happens, which is in Scotland is an independent assessment and is legally required if you're on an open market. But what I do is I meet the surveyor and you have to be very respectful because these people are specialists and they know what we do. Generally, they will base it on what they see the property is worth right now. They don't really care how much work you've done. But you can create a valuation pack, which is where you use. So, for instance, I use the, the estate agent that was going to sell my property. And I told them to run me a right, right move plus report, which is a detail of all the sales in that area within a quarter mile radius. So that way, if the valuer came back and said, oh, you know, I, I think it's worth seven, well, he actually came back and said, and I went back and said, well, on the conversation, I went, well, actually, I was hoping for 78. And he's like, well, why is that? And I went, well, you know, Janice from the local estate agent said, two doors down, that sold for 78. My house is in a better condition than that. Um, also, in the valuation pack, I put some pre-pictures in and also work carried out. So based on what I'd said, based on the conversation, based on the valuation pack, he was happy to then 
put it up for 78 rather than the 75. So that one conversation was worth roughly £5,000. Now you're thinking, what do you mean 5000 Well, when someone values something at 78, if someone's going to put an offer in over, it will naturally take them up to 80. And that's what happened. Awesome. So, yeah. Um, so surveyors is- do have the ability to flex roughly 5%. Don't push them, don't be disrespectful, but if you've done your research and you've got the analysis to back it up, you can have that conversation with the surveyor about why you think what it is. Because remember, you're paying for that valuation as well. Yeah, exactly. So would you say that the valuation pack is really the key to getting that good valuation after you've done all the research before? It helps. And and it helps to get your thoughts. I, I think the valuation pack, because some surveyors won't touch it because they see it's disrespectful as you're trying to do the job. Some will be friendly and take it. I typically try to find a middle ground, so I'll create a valuation pack, but I'll take a minute of their time to take them through it and then leave because, but then I'll just have a discussion about what I've done. But by creating the valuation pack, I've made it crystal clear in my own head but when I talk to the surveyor, because I always make sure I'm there when they're doing the valuation, that I can hit the key metrics of what I've done and also the surrounding area. So that way we're both online as to expectations. When people don't like to disappoint you. So say, for instance, if I'd said 78 in a conversation and he said 77, he might just go with the 78 because he goes, you know what, that's a lot less hassle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think if you like, actually tell them what you're looking for they may be more inclined to go for that really rather than yeah golden rule in this world if you don't tell people what you want how can it give how can the world give you what you want yeah exactly goes for investors goes for property deals you know it goes as long as i always feel as long as you do it in a respectful way and don't put anyone else out or put them under any kind of pressure you've got a right to tell the world what you want from it but by in, in turn you've also got a right therefore to help people you know it, it's a two-way street you tell the world what you want but you also help fill other people's wants as well yeah exactly yeah definitely so um in the questions before you mentioned that it's a good idea to speak to people in the area when you're researching an area such as neighbors um of the property you're looking at what sort of questions would you be looking to ask them it's a well first of all you just try and speak to them are they friendly <laughs> if you know what i mean so <laughs> you'll get a, you'll just get a, a vibe um you know after talking to a couple of people in a street are the gardens there's a lot of information that you can actually pick up from a google walk walk of the street so if you go into google maps and then go into, you know, the street view, just take a walk down the street without leaving your home of the state. Is there cars in, you know, is there a sofa outside someone's house? Is a rubbish tip lying about? So that gives you a good feeling of the neighbourhood. Then it's just, and don't be too interrogative. Just be friendly. Even be helpful or say, I'm thinking about moving into the area. You know, where's a good place to eat? Or, you know, is there good schools around here, etc. So it just act like as if 
you're about to buy a house for yourself and if people there are dissing it then that should be a big clue because more people tend to want to big up where they stay or want to kind of you know celebrate where they stay yeah exactly so you just want to have a natural conversation as if you're about to move into the area and to just get some information of them as to you know is there good places to go eat what the school's like you know how long is it into town is there any any places that you should watch out for and they will just naturally just tell you and the other thing is i always carry some cards with me um and they're I deliberately make them a little bit not as shabby or snazzy because you don't want to appear like some kind of shark or corporate person. So, and you give them a card and you go, well, if you see any property that's going up for sale or you know someone I'm looking to sell, here's my card. And if you if I end up buying it, then I'm happy to pay you a finder's fee. You know, and that motivates people. So what that does is then you've got people looking for property for you. Yeah, exactly. And so you... And because you're there looking in that area, because you've done your strategy at the beginning, because you've done your area research, you know you're going to buy a property in that area. So this way, you're putting your card out and you're getting people to hunt for you. And if they hear something, they'll bring it to you. And But do make sure that you know you look after the people that brought that deal to you because that's how you're going to get more because you know how difficult it is to get deals and you know how much you have to pay in sourcing fees. So paying a couple of hundred pounds for someone to bring tell you about someone that's selling a property, you know, that's gold dust. Yeah, exactly. So you're just sort of leveraging other people's time, essentially. Yeah, and they're getting paid a lot. They, they're basically getting paid to tell you, oh, you know, Sandra down the road is selling her house. Yeah, exactly. And would would you pay them only if the property went through or would you just pay them for giving you the, the lead, essentially? It's if the property goes through, it's, you know, otherwise you're going to get a lot of, you're going to be out of a lot of money for not a lot of return. So this way, the way I phrase it is, you know, if you know someone looking to sell property, um, you've got my number, let me know. And if I end up buying it, I'll make sure that you get X. And I I gauge it on the area and the person kind of thing. And, you know, the, the, the property prices in and around there as well. Yeah, awesome. So if you could go back then and give your younger self or just yourself your yourself before you started in property or just your younger self in general, what, three top tips, what would they be? So I'm going to get a little metaphysical. Everything you experience and everything you see is a product of what goes on inside your head. So mindset, and when I say mindset, it's not uh, wishy-washy, it's building up resilience, it's figuring out why you want to do property. You know, if you want to make tons of money, that's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. If you want to do it for social reasons, like I get a kick out of seeing a family in a rundown house that I've turned around and it's brand, you know, almost like a new build and raising, because when you go back for a, a mortgage, you have to kind of, uh, I meet the surveyor at the property and then you get a feel for how someone's taken a house and turned it into a home so that gives me a kick also in scotland there's a shortage of property so you need to figure out a reason why you're doing property and that's what will get you out of bed at six in the morning to go look at a prospective deal and when things are hard 
it'll give you that kind of not motivation but that discipline because motivation is great for starting but discipline is what gets you through so a big one for me and i've said this throughout is working on your mindset working on that inner voice you know working doing your analysis doing everything you can to help your mind to be able to make the best decisions it can at that point in time the other thing that i would say is and it touches a little, everything will touch on mindset, but it's the fear of missing out. There will always be another deal. There is, don't lose your ethics or your morals chasing something that is so, like, you know, don't have that scarcity mindset. There is loads and loads. There will always be another deal. It might be a better deal. It might not be as good a deal, but there'll always be another deal along the line. So don't get caught up in that sort of loop cycle of anxiety if something's not going to work out. So don't just jump in. The other thing is act fast, but wisely. So don't hang about. When you get to that Pareto principle, when you get to that 80% that you're happy with and it hits your numbers and it hits your key metrics, go for it. Because what will happen is even if you run into that 80 20 and you go for it and then you contact me you go listen i did my 80 and i'm stuck now i go well okay let's figure it out i'll happily help you figure out the 20 if you went ahead and done that 80 but if you've not even done five or ten then it's hard to ask for that 20 so it's act fast but wisely so do all your research and prep beforehand so then you can, when it's time to make a decision, you're prepared and you're confident to take it. Yeah, awesome. That's some really good tips. So yeah, brilliant stuff. So finally then, is there any special mentions that you'd like to give to anyone? I, I think at the, the current situation that we're in right now, I, I think we all have to kind of pay our respects to the NHS workers and as well as everybody else that's keeping the country going. I mean, they're doing a fantastic job and it's deeply appreciated by everybody that's listening and, you know, myself and yourselves as well. The other couple of people that I want to touch on is actually you guys. Uh, I know we've only briefly met, but I've been impressed with your professionalism. I'm actually a little bit jealous of how early you guys are starting out and I, the possibilities ahead of you are endless. So, you know, I'm always here if, you, if there's anything you want to ask or bounce off of, but I'm sure all your guests uh, will feel that way towards you. Uh, and the other is just family and friends that have believed in me and supported me along the way because we all have our doubts and we all need other people to lean on. Uh, when I was in 2016, I broke my back, uh, two discs, popped and I was bedridden well floor ridden for nine months I couldn't walk I couldn't sleep I couldn't uh, stand that was a really really tough time and because I had great friends and family in and around me that's what helped me get through it and also that's where like the stuff when the mindset really kicks in is when you're down how do you get up well it's the next step just take the next step and the next step. And before you know it, you, you've climbed that mountain. Yeah, awesome. So really appreciate the kind words there, Arshad. Thank you very much. And 
really appreciate you coming on today. It's been great to just have a chat with you and we've really learned a lot. So yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you. No, fantastic. And as I said to people, if you want to get in touch with me, you can get me on my socials at Ashadali in Facebook or Instagram, on LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, I think I've even got a TikTok, but uh, I'm not quite using that yet. Uh, so it'd be great to hear from you, especially if you've heard from this podcast, because then I want to come back and feedback here to let know what can be done when you put it out into the world, what you're looking for. Yeah, awesome. We'll <clears throat> we'll make sure we link your socials down below anyway in the show notes. So, yeah, thank you guys for listening today. Really hope you've enjoyed it and taken a lot from Arshad and the lessons he's learned on his journey so far. And yeah, we look forward to seeing you next week. And please make sure to leave us a review wherever you're listening. Thank you very much, guys. Have a great day.